Part Seven of Volume Two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Volume Two of Plutarch's Parallel Lives of the Noble Greeks and Romans, translated by Bernadotte Perrin. Camillus, Part Four. They were not yet done with these pressing tasks, when a fresh war broke upon them. The Aequians, Volscians, and Latins burst into their territory all at once, and the Tuscans laid siege to Sutrium, and city allied with Rome. The military tribunes in command of the army, having encamped near Mount Marcius, were besieged by the Latins, and were in danger of losing their camp. Wherefore they sent to Rome for aid, and Camillus was appointed dictator for the third time. Two stories are told about this war, and I will give the fabulous one first. They say that the Latins, either as a pretext for war, or because they really wished to revive the ancient affinity between the two peoples, sent and demanded from the Romans free-born virgins in marriage. The Romans were in doubt what to do, for they dreaded war in their unsettled and unrestored condition, and yet they suspected that this demand for wives was really a call for hostages, disguised under the specious name of intermarriage. In their perplexity, a serving maid named Tutula, or as some call her Philotis, advised the magistrates to send her to the enemy with some maid servants of the commonest sort and most genteel appearance all arrayed like free-born brides. She would attend to the rest. The magistrates yielded to her persuasions. Choose out as many maid-servants as she thought meet for her purpose, arrayed them in fine raiment and gold, and handed them over to the Latins, who were encamped near the city. In the night, the rest of the maidens stole away the enemy's swords, while Tutula or Philotis, climbed a wild victory of great height, and after spreading out her cloak behind her, held out a lighted torch towards Rome, this being the signal agreed upon between her and the magistrates, though no other citizen knew of it. Hence it was that the soldiers sallied out of the city tumultuously, as the magistrates urged them on, calling out one another's names, and with much ado getting into rank and file. They stormed the entrenchments of the enemy, who were fast asleep and expecting nothing of the sort, captured their camp, and slew most of them. This happened on the nones of what was then called Quintilis, now July, and the festival since held on that day is in remembrance of the exploit. For, to begin with, they ran out of the city gate in throngs, calling out loudly many local and common names, such as Gaines, Marcus, Lucius, and the like, in imitation of the way the soldiers once called aloud upon each other in their haste. Next, the maid-servants, in gay attire, fun about jesting and joking with the men they meet. They have a mock battle, too, with one another, implying that they once took a hand in the struggle with the Latins. And as they feast, they sit in the shade of a fig-tree's branches. The day is called the Capratine Nones, from the wild victory, as they suppose, from which the maid held forth the torch. This goes by the name of Caprificus. 
but others say that most of what is said and done at this festival has reference to the fate of Romulus. For on this same day he vanished from sight, outside the city gates, in sudden darkness and tempest, and as something during an eclipse of the sun. The day, they say, is called the Capratin Nons, from the spot where he thus vanished. For the she-goat goes by the name of Capra, and Romulus vanished from sight while haranguing an assembly of the people at the goat's marsh, as has been stated in his life. But most writers adopt the other account of this war, which runs thus. Camillus, having been appointed dictator for the third time, and learning that the army under the military tribunes was besieged by the Latins and Volscians, was forced to put under arms even those of the citizens who were exempt from military duty by reason of advancing years. Fetching a long circuit around Mount Marcius, and thus eluding the enemy's notice, he planted his army securely in their rear, and then, by lighting many fires, made known his presence there. The besieged Romans at once took heart and proposed to sally out and join battle. But the Latins and Volscians retired within their trenches, fenced themselves in with a great wooden palisade, and barricaded their camp on all sides, for they now had a hostile force in front and rear, and were determined to await reinforcements from home. At the same time, they expected aid from the Tuscans also. Camillus, perceiving their design, and fearful of being himself surrounded by the enemy, as he had surrounded them, made haste to improve his opportunity. The enemy's barricades were of wood, and a strong wind blew down from the mountains at sunrise. Accordingly, he equipped himself with fiery darts, and leading his forces out towards daybreak, ordered part of them to attack with missiles and loud cries at an opposite point, while he himself, with those appointed to hurl fire, took his post where the wind was wont to smite the enemy's trenches with the greatest force, and awaited the propitious moment. When battle had been joined and the sun rose, and the wind burst forth with fury, he gave orders for an onset, and scattered no end of fiery darts along the trenches. The flames speedily found food in the crowded timbers of the wooden palisades, and spread in all directions. The Latins had nothing at hand with which to ward off or quench them, and when at length their camp was full of fire, they were huddled together into a small space, and at last forced to dash out against an enemy, who were drawn up in full battle array in front of the trenches. Few of them made their escape, and those who were left behind in the camp were all a prey to the fire, until the Romans put it out and fell upon their booty. This business dispatched, he left his son Lucius in command of the camp to guard the captives and the booty, while he himself invaded the enemy's country. He captured the city of the Aequians, brought the Volscians to terms, and straightway led his army towards Sutrium. He was not yet apprised of the fate of the Sutrians, but thought they were still in peril of siege by the Tuscans, and so hastened to relieve them. But they had already surrendered their city to the enemy, and been sent off in utter destitution, with nothing but the clothes on their backs. As Camillus came, marching along, they met him, with their wives and children, all lamenting their misfortunes. 
Camillus himself was filled with compassion at the sight, and noticed that his Romans too, with the Sutrians hanging upon their necks in supplication, were moved to tears and anger at their lot. He therefore determined to make no postponement of his vengeance, but to march straight upon Sutrium that very day. He reasoned that men, who had just taken a prosperous and opulent city, leaving none of their enemies in it, and expecting none from without, would be found wholly relaxed in discipline and off their guard, and he reasoned correctly. He not only passed and noticed through the city's territory, but was actually at its gates and in command of its walls before the enemy knew it. For not a man of them was on guard, but they were all scattered among the houses of the city, drinking and feasting. And even when they perceived that their enemies already had the mastery, they were so sluggishly disposed by reason of satiety and drunkenness, that many did not so much as try to flee, but awaited there in the houses the most shameful of all death, or gave themselves up to their enemies. The city of Sutrium was thus twice captured in a single day, and it came to pass that those who had won it lost it, and those who had first lost it won it back, and all by reason of Camillus. The triumph decreed him for these victories, brought him no less favor and renown than his first two had done, and those citizens who had been most envious of him, and preferred to ascribe all his successes to an unbounded good fortune, rather than to a native valor, were forced by these new exploits to set the man's glory to the credit of his ability and energy. Now of all those who fought him with hatred and envy, the most conspicuous was Marcus Manlius, the man who first thrust the Gauls down the cliff when they made their night attack upon the capital, and for this reason had been surnamed Capitolinus. This man aspired to be chief in the city, and since he could not in the fairest way outstrip Camillus in the race for glory, he had recourse to the vaunted and usual arts of those that would found a tyranny. He courted, that is, the favor of the multitude, especially of the debtor class, defending some and pleading their causes against their creditors, snatching others from arrest, and preventing their trial by process of law. In this way, great numbers of indignant folks soon formed a party about him, and their bold and riotous conduct in the forum gave the best citizens much to fear. To quell their disorder, Quintus Capitolinus was made dictator, and he cast Manlius into prison. Thereupon the people put on the garb of mourners, a thing done only in times of great public calamity, and the Senate, cowed by the tumult, ordered that Manlius be released. He, however, when released, did not mend his ways, but grew more defiantly seditious, and filled the whole city with faction. Accordingly, Camillus was made again military tribune. When Manlius was brought to trial, the view from the place was a great obstacle in the way of his accusers. For the spot where Manlius had stood when he fought his night battle with the Gauls, overlooked the forum from the capital, and moved the hearts of the spectators to pity. Manlius himself, too, stretched out his hands towards the spot, and wept as he called to men's remembrance his famous struggle there, so that the judges knew not 
what to do, and once and again postponed the case. They were unwilling to acquit the prisoner of his crime when the proofs of it were so plain, and they were unable to execute the law upon him when, owing to the place of trial, his saving exploit was, so to speak, in every eye. So Camillus, sensible of all this, transferred the court outside the city to the Petaline Grove, whence there is no view of the capital. There the prosecutor made his indictment, and the judges were able to forget the man's past services in their righteous anger at his present crimes. So then, Manlius was convicted, carried to the capital, and thrust down the rock, thus making one and the same spot a monument of his most fortunate actions, and of his greatest misfortunes. The Romans, besides, raised his house to the ground, and built there a temple to the goddess they call Moneta. They decreed also that in future no patrician should ever have a house on the capital in hell. Camillus, called now to be military tribune for the sixth time, declared the honor, being already well on in years, and fearful, perhaps, of the envy of men, and the resentment of the gods, which often follows, upon such glorious successes as his. But the most manifest reason was his bodily weakness, for it chanced that in those days he was sick. The people, however, would not relieve him of the office. He had no need, they cried, to fight in the ranks of the cavalry, or the men-at-arms, but only to counsel and ordain, and so they forced him to undertake the command, and with one of his colleagues, Lucius Furius, to lead the army at once against the enemy. These were the Praenestines and Volscians, who, with a large force, were laying waste the lands of the Roman allies. Marching forth, therefore, and encamping near the enemy, he himself thought it best to protract the war, that so, in case a battle should at last be necessary, he might be strong of body for the decisive struggle. But Lucius, his colleague, carried away by his desire for glory, would not be checked in his ardor for battle, and incited the same feelings in the inferior officers of the army. So Camillus, fearing lest it be thought that out of pity jealousy he was trying to rob younger men of the successes to which they eagerly aspired, consented with reluctance that Lucius should lead the forces out to battle, while he himself, on account of his sickness, was left behind in the camp with a few followers. Lucius conducted the battle rashly, and was discomfited, whereupon Camillus, perceiving the route of the Romans, could not restrain himself, but sprang up from his couch, and ran with his attendants to the gate of the camp. Through the fugitives he pushed his way to their pursuers. Those of his men who had passed him into the camp wheeled about at once and followed him, and those who came bearing down on him from outside halted and formed their lines about him, exhorting one another not to abandon their general. In this way, for that day, the enemy were turned back from their pursuit. On the next day, Camillus led his forces out, joined battle with the enemy, defeated them utterly, and took their camp, actually bursting into it along with those who fled to it, and slaying most of them. After this, learning that the city of Satricum had been taken by the Tuscans, 
and its inhabitants, all Romans, put to the sword, he sent back to Rome the main body of his army, comprising the men-at-arms, while he himself, with the youngest and most ardent of his men, fell suddenly upon the Tuscans, who held the city, and mastered them, expelling some and slaying the rest. He returned with much spoil to Rome, having proved that those citizens were the most sensible of all, who did not fear the bodily age and weakness of a leader, possessed of experience and courage, but chose him out, though he was ill and did not wish it, rather than younger men who craved and solicited the command. They showed the same good sense, when the Tusculans were reported to be on the brink of a revolt, in ordering Camillus to select one of his five colleagues as an aid, and march out against them. Although all the five wished and begged to be taken, Camillus passed the rest by and selected Lucius Furius, to everyone's surprise. For he was the man who had just now been eager to hazard a struggle with the enemy against the judgment of Camillus, and had been worsted in the battle. But Camillus wished, as it would seem, to hide away the misfortune and wipe away the disgrace of the man, and so preferred him above all the rest. But the Tusculans, when once Camillus was on the march against them, set so rectifying their transgression as craftily as they could. Their fields were found full of men, tilling the soil and pasturing flocks, as in times of peace. Their gates lay wide open. Their boys were at school cunning their lessons, and of the people, the artisans were to be seen in their workshops, plying their trades. The men of leisure sauntered over the forum, clad in their usual garb, while the magistrates bustled about, assigning quarters for the Romans, as though they expected and were conscious of no evil. Their performances did not bring Camillus into any doubt of their intended treachery, but out of pity for the repentance that followed so close upon their treachery, he ordered them to go to the Senate and beg for a remission of its wrath. He himself also helped to make their prayers effectual, so that their city was absolved from all charges, and received the rights of Roman citizenship. Such were the most conspicuous achievements of his sixth tribuneship. After this, Licinius Stolo stirred up the great decession in the city, which brought the people into collision with the Senate. The people insisted that, when two consuls were appointed, one of them must certainly be a plebeian, and not both patricians. Tribunes of the people were chosen, but the multitude prevented the consular elections from being duly held. Owing to this lack of magistrates, matters were getting more and more confused, and so Camillus was for the fourth time appointed dictator by the Senate, so much against the wishes of the people. He was not eager for the office himself, nor did he wish to oppose men whose many and great struggles gave them the right to say boldly to him, your achievements have been in the field with us, rather than in politics with the patricians. It is through hate and envy that they have now made you dictator. They hope that you will crush the people if you prevail, or be crushed yourself if you fail. However, he tried to ward off the threatening evils. Having learned the day on which the tribunes intended to propose their law, he issued proclamation making it a day of general muster, and summoned the people from the forum into the campus martius, 
with threats of heavy fines upon the disobedient. The tribunes, on the contrary, for their part, opposed his threats with solemn oaths that they would fine him fifty thousand silver drachmas if he did not cease trying to rob the people of its vote and its law. Then, either because he feared a second condemnation to exile, a penalty unbecoming to a man of his years and achievements, or because he was not able, if he wished, to overcome the might of the people, which was now become resistless and invincible, he withdrew to his house, and after alleging sickness for several days, resigned his office. But the Senate appointed another dictator, and he, after making Stolo himself, the very leader of the sedition, his master of horse, suffered the law to be enacted. It was a most vexatious law for the patrician, for it prohibited any one from owning more than five hundred acres of land. At that time, then, Stolo was a resplendent figure, owing to his victory at the poles. But a little while after, he himself was found to be possessed of what he forbade others to own, and so paid the penalty fixed by his own law. There remained, however, the strife over the consular elections, which was the main problem in the dissensions, and it was its first cause, and gave the Senate most concern in its contention with the people. But suddenly clear tidings came that the Gauls had once more set out from the Adriatic Sea, many myriads strong, and were marching on Rome. With the word, the actual deeds of war kept pace. The country was ravaged, and its population, all who could not more easily fly to Rome for refuge, scattered among the mountains. The terror put an end to the dissension in the city, and brought together, into conference, both the rich and the poor, the senate and the people. All with one mind chose Camilla's dictator for the fifth time. He was now quite old, lacking little of eighty years, but recognizing the peril and the necessity which it laid upon him, he neither made excuse, as before, nor resorted to pretext, but instantly took upon him the command, and went to levying his soldiers. Knowing that the prowess of the barbarians lay chiefly in their swords, which they plead in true barbaric fashion, and with no skill at all, in mere slashing blows at head and shoulders, he had helmets forged for most of his men, which were all iron and smooth of surface, that the enemy's swords might slip off from them or be shattered by them. He also had the long shields of his men rimmed round with bronze, since their wood could not of itself ward off the enemy's blows. The soldiers themselves he trained to use their long javelins like spears, to thrust them under the enemy's swords and catch the downward strokes upon them. When the Gauls were near at hand, being encamped on the Anio, and encumbered with untold plunder, Camillus led his forces out and posted them in a gently sloping glade with many hollows, so that the largest part of them were concealed, and the part that could be seen had the look of shutting themselves up in hilly places out of fear. This opinion of them Camillus wished to strengthen, and therefore made no defense of those who were plundered even at his very feet, but fenced in his trenches and lay quiet, until he saw that some of the enemy were scattered abroad in foraging parties, while those in the camp did nothing but gorge themselves with meat and drink. 
Then, while it was yet night, he sent his light-armed troops forward to hinder the barbarians from falling into battle array, and throw them into confusion as they issued from the camp. Just before dawn, he let his men-at-arms down into the plain, and drew them up in battle array, many in number and full of spirit, as the barbarians now saw, not few and timid as they had expected. To begin with, it was this which shattered the confidence of the Gauls, who thought it beneath them to be attacked first. Then again, the light-armed folk fell upon them, forced them into action before they had taken their usual order and been arrayed in companies, and so compelled them to fight at random and in utter disorder. Finally, when Camillus led his men-at-arms to the attack, the enemy raised their swords on high and rushed for close quarters. But the Romans thrust their javelins into their faces, received their strokes and the parts that were shielded by iron, and so turned the edge of their metal, which was soft and weakly tempered, so much, so that their swords quickly bent up double, while their shields were pierced and weighed down by the javelins, which struck in them. Therefore they actually abandoned their own weapons, and tried to possess themselves of those of their enemies, and to turn aside the javelins by grasping them in their hands. But the Romans, seeing them thus disarmed, at once took to using their swords, and there was a great slaughter of their foremost ranks, while the rest fled every weather over the plain. The hilltops and high places had been occupied beforehand by Camillus, and they knew that their camp could easily be taken, since, in their overweening confidence, they had neglected to fortify it. This battle, they say, was fought thirteen years after the capture of Rome, and produced in the Romans a firm feeling of confidence regarding the Gauls. They had mightily feared these barbarians, who had been conquered by them in the first instance, as they felt, in consequence of sickness and extraordinary misfortunes, rather than of any prowess in their conquerors. At any rate, so great had their terror been, that they made a law exempting priests from military service, except in case of a Gallic war. This was the last military exploit performed by Camillus, for the capture of Velitrae was a direct sequel of this campaign, and it yielded to him without a struggle. But the greatest of his civil contests yet remained, and it was harder to wage it now against the people which had come back flushed with victory, and bent on electing a plebeian consul contrary to the established law. But the Senate opposed their demands, and would not suffer Camillus to lay aside his office, thinking that, with the aid of his great power and authority, they could make a better fight in defense of their aristocracy. But once, when Camillus was seated in state, and dispatching public business in the forum, an officer, sent by the tribunes of the people, ordered him to follow, actually laying hands upon him as though to hail him away. All at once such cries and tumult, as had never been heard before, filled the forum, the friends of Camillus thrusting the plebeian officer down from the tribunal, and the multitude below ordering him to drag the dictator away. Camillus, perplexed at the issue, did not renounce his office, but taking the senators with him, marched off to their place of meeting. Before he entered this, 
turning to the capital, he prayed the gods to bring the present tumults to their happiest end, solemnly vowing to build a temple to Concord when the confusion was over. In the Senate there was a great conflict of opposing views, but nevertheless the milder course prevailed. Concession was made to the people, and permission given them to elect one of the consuls from their own body. When the dictator announced this to the people, as the will and pleasure of the Senate, at once, as was to be expected, they were delighted to be reconciled with the Senate, and escorted Camillus to his home with loud applause. On the following day they held an assembly, and voted to build a temple of concord, as Camillus had vowed, and to have it face the forum and place of assembly, to commemorate what had now happened. They voted also to add a day to the so-called Latin festival, and thereafter to celebrate four days, and that all Romans at once perform sacrifices, with garlands on their heads. At the elections held by Camillus, Marcus Aemilius was chosen consul from the patricians, and Lucius Sextus first consul from the plebeians. This was the last public act of Camillus. In the year following, a pestilential sickness visited Rome, carrying off an incalculable number of the common people and most of the magistrates. Camillus also died at this time, and he was full ripe for death, if any man ever was, considering his years and the completeness of his life. Yet his loss grieved the Romans more than that of all those who perished of the plague at this time. End of Camillus